And one of the emphasis or one of the emphases on Rosh Hashanah is the kingship of God. One of the reasons for the round, one of the reasons for the round challah is symbolizing a crown, emphasizing the kingship of God on Rosh Hashanah. Avinu Malkenu, our Father, our King. So as we think of kingship, as we think of his laws, there's from, um, there's from this is from the holiday edition of the World, World Jewry Digest, an eight-year-old boy, this is a Paris suburb, which I won't attempt to pronounce, an eight-year-old boy wearing a kippah in this Paris suburb was knocked to the ground and beaten by a 15-year-old assailant in an apparent anti-Semitic attack. Earlier the same month, a 15-year-old Jewish girl was slashed in the face while walking home from her private Jewish school wearing its uniform, and two kosher shops were torched after being attacked by individuals who painted swastikas on their facades. French President Emmanuel Macron condemned the incidents, tweeting, every time a citizen is attacked because of his age, his appearance, or his religion, the whole country is being attacked. And it is the whole country that stands alongside the French Jews to fight each of these despicable acts with them and for them. Well, that's his um, good spirit there, although the, the fact of the matter, not the whole country is standing beside them or there wouldn't be these anti-Semitic attacks. But what would we expect? What would we expect of the assailants if they, if they um, felt remorse and they were repenting of this? Act. We would um, expect them to seek forgiveness, restitution. Um, we, we would not, one thing we would not expect them to say, "I'm so sorry," and then they're going to. But then they're going to go on with the same type of activity after they apologize. The same type of of attacks. Um, sometimes we might have that approach to repentance, though, as if um, it's a matter of saying, "Oh, I'm so sorry," and then I'm going to go ahead and continue. No, I don't think anybody says that, but that might be our approach, unfortunately. In Rosh Hashanah, the emphasis is our father, our king, our submission to our king. And the God of Yisrael is a God whom we should love, of course. But he's also one whom we should fear. Fear God? Well, that's not popular in step with modern times. Not politically correct. Or the popular thing now is if you disagree with someone. That's not, that's not on the right side of history. The assumption always being the person talking is on the right side of history. But simplistic love, void of reverential respect and awe, that is an incomplete perspective with which to approach Shavino Mokinu, our father, our king. And that's a key theme of our father, Avinu. That's a theme which Shimon Kefa, also known as Simon Peter, draws upon in the first chapter one, the first chapter of his first epistle. So starting at 1st Kepha, 1st Peter 1.17, where he says, also, if you are addressing as father, the one who judges impartially according to each person's actions, you should live out your temporary stay on earth in fear. So what's the significance of our addressing God as father? Well, there may be an allusion here in part to Tehillim in the book of Psalms, chapter 89. Psalms 89, 20 and following says, with, um, with regarding um, God um, addressing 
or describing David, I have found David my servant and anointed him with my holy oil. My hand will always be with him, and my arm will give him strength. No enemy will outwit him, no wicked man overcome him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and grace will be with him. Through my name, his power will grow. I will put his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He will call to me, you are my father, my God, the rock of my salvation. The fatherness of God we see here. But there also may be an allusion to the prophet Yermiyahu, Jeremiah chapter 3, chapter 317 says, when that time comes, they will call Jerusalem the throne of Hashem. All the nations will be gathered there to the name of Hashem, to Jerusalem. No longer will they, will they live according to their stubbornly evil hearts. In those days, the house of Yehuda will live together with the house of Israel. They will come together with, from the lands in the north to the land I gave your ancestors as their heritage. I thought that I would like to put you among the sons with inheritance rights and give you a pleasant land, the best heritage of all the nations. I thought that you would call me my father. Never stop following me. So God's being our father. It's an important truth. It allows us to know that we belong. But we need to keep a war- we need to keep a warning a warning from Yohanan Hamat Biel, Yohanan the Immerser, in mind in the first gospel in Matthew three seven and following. This is his warning. But when Yohanan saw many of the Prushim and Sadukim coming to be immersed by him, he said to them, "You snakes, who warned you to escape the coming punishment?" If you have really turned from your sins to God, produce fruit that will prove it. And don't suppose you can comfort yourselves by saying, Abraham is our father. For I tell you that God can raise up for Abraham sons from these stones. Already the axe is at the root of the trees, ready to strike. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown in fire. Some of the issues with some of the fires in California have been some of the... um, some of the trees are, are dead trees, still standing, but are not, not, not producing fruit or basically dead. And we can be spiritually dead. We, calling someone your father isn't the same as living in obedience to your father. We have to produce good fruit, not just reply upon the fact that we claim that God is our father. According to Shimon Kepha in this first verse, verse God is an impartial judge. That means that God can discern whether or not, whether or not we're bringing forth the fruit of the Ruach in our lives. So the fruit of the Ruach, how do we live? How would Kepha's readers living in the Galut, the dispersion outside the land of Israel, how would they live? Would Kepha have them trust simply in their Jewish ancestry or in some abstract acknowledgement of the Father of God? Or we're, we're all children of God. I mean, that, that can be used in many different ways. He wouldn't. We're exhorted to live in fear. Not the most comfortable thing to think about, but we're exhorted to live in fear by Kepha, to be fearers of God. Fear? Fear? In the, in the sense of that kind of healthy and holy reverence for God. 
which is the condition of all true understanding of life. It's, it constrains men. It constrains us to delight in God's ways and depart from evil. In Michelet, the book of Proverbs 16.6, it says, Proverbs 16.6, Grace and truth atone for iniquity, and people turn from evil through fear of Hashem. Now, what sort of, what sort of God, what sort of deity are we being asked to revere? We're being asked to revere our Redeemer. Kepha illustrates this with both a positive, well, excuse me, positive and negative. The negative is first. A negative in verse 18, then we'll see a positive in verse 19. So in 1 Kepha 1.18, you should be aware that the ransom paid to free you from the worthless way of life which your fathers passed on to you did not consist of anything perishable like silver or gold. So this redemption which is spoken of with an image of physical removal from one place to another from one place to another and such a redemption it's normally accomplished you know if you're going to redeem someone the movement it would be accomplished with the commodities of currency with silver or with gold in other words basically with money a lot of, we have a lot of words for um, stuff, guilt, whatever you want to call it. But how does, uh, how does God accomplish our redemption? With money? Isaiah 52.3 addresses this. For thus said, says Hashem, you were sold for nothing, and you will be deemed without money. See that it's, it's, not, it's not a mere earthly commodity. It's not a simple earthly redemption here. Verse 19, which we'll look at in a minute, tells us it's the blood of Messiah which is the basis of our redemption. But what are we, we may say, oh, redemption, redemption, but what do, um, uh, I remember in um, Moish Rosen, one of his books, he was, he was at a congregation, he was a new believer and he heard a lot about the blood, the blood he didn't really understand. He said at one point, whoever this Emmanuel is is giving a big donation to the blood bank. So we sometimes have to see understand that. What exactly are redeemed from? It's from the worthless or futile way of life as it's described, which one needs to be redeemed from. The, um, a lot of people, I don't hold this view, so I'm in the minority here that Kepha's audience was primarily non-Jewish. But um, I think oh, as a whole, the, his letter, it fits in a lot better with the, as a primarily Jewish audience. But there is, there is the possibility that a significant portion of his audience were converts to Judaism who had been born into paganism. That may be his reference with the worthless way of life that you're redeemed from. But the context of the epistle, beyond that, we need to realize that although Torah is absolutely not futile or legalistic, when any of our people corrupt Torah into an oppressive or legalistic yoke, we're leaving a worthless inheritance to our children. If, you, if we tell our children, this is the Torah of God, but we don't tell them why or, or see the richness or the importance of it, or the love of it, it's a worthless inheritance. There's, I'm, my, my class right now, uh, we're studying the Gilded Age. 
It was called the Gilded Age because they believe in American history after the Civil War, they believed there was an out, a trapping of wealth, like gold plate on the outside, but with the inside there was a lot more problems, upheavals, and poverty. Romans chapter 3, verses 20, just 20 and 28. Verse, Romans chapter three twenty says, For in his sight no one alive will be considered righteous on the ground of legalistic observance of Torah commands. Because what Torah really does is show people how sinful they are. And if you jump to verse 28, it says, Therefore, we hold the view that a person comes to be considered righteous by God on the ground of trusting, which has nothing to do with legalistic observance of Torah commands. Torah is wonderful. But when we pervert it from a guide for holy living, which was intended to be into a legalistic burden, we're sowing futility, and when you sow futility, you'll reap futility. It's from such futility that Messiah Yeshua offers us redemption. Okay, so I said it was a negative, then it'll be a positive, verse 19. We know what Hashem does not redeem us from, with, or does not redeem us with, with money. So what does he redeem us with? In verse 19 of 1 Kepha 119, on the contrary, it was the costly, bloody sacrifice Sacrificial death of the Messiah as a lamb, as of a lamb without defect or spot. Our fathers needed redemption from bondage in Egypt, and we need redemption from bondage to sin. But as was stated in verse 18, our redemption is not accomplished with silver or gold, but with something much more valuable, the blood of Messiah Yeshua. How did Yochanan Hamatbil, Yochanan the Immerser, recognize Yeshua? In, so in the fourth gospel, 129, it says, The next day, Yochanan saw Yeshua coming toward him and said, Look, God's Lamb, the one who is taking away the sin of the world. What qualifies Yeshua to take away the sin of the world? Well, what was the ideal sacrificial animal like? In the third book of the Bible, in Vayikra or Leviticus 22, 17 for following, it says, Hashem said to Moshe, speak to Haron and his sons and to the entire people of Yisrael. Tell them, when anyone, whether a member of the house of Yisrael or a foreigner living in Yisrael, brings his offering, either in connection with a vow or as a voluntary offering, and brings it to Hashem as a burnt offering, in order for you to be accepted, you must bring a male without defect from the cattle, the sheep, or the goats. You're not to bring anything with a defect because it will not be accepted from you. Whoever brings a sacrifice of peace offerings to Hashem in fulfillment of a vow or as a voluntary offering, whether it come from the herd or from the flock, it must be unblemished and without defect in order to be accepted. If it is blind, injured, mutilated, has an abnormal growth, or has festering or running sores, you are not to offer it to Hashem or make such an offering by fire on the altar to Hashem. If a bull or lamb has a limb which is too short, too long or too short, you may offer it as a voluntary offering. But for a vow it will not be accepted. An animal with bruised, crushed, torn, or cut genitals, you are not to offer to Hashem. You are not to do these things in your land. And you are not to receive any of these from a foreigner or, you, or for you to offer as bread for your God because their deformity is a defect in them. They will not be accepted from you. So we see without defect here, 
when they say the pure and spotless lamb they talk about, would we expect the lamb of God to be any less perfect? In the book, in the letter of the Hebrews 9, 13 to 14, it says, For if sprinkling ceremonially unclean persons with the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer restores their outward purity, then how much more the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself to God as a sacrifice without blemish, will purify our conscience from, from works that lead to death so that we can serve the living God. It can be um, in some ways amazing, but also um, very frustrating that many people, many people who say they follow Messiah, seem to think of him as one who came to free us For what? For a cushy life, free from kashrut, shabbat, the temple, etc. All those mundane things. But Yeshua was the fulfillment of Torah. He did not come to relax God's righteous standards. Rather, he's the ultimate perfect fulfillment of Torah. The standard by which all servants of Hashem are judged. He's the unblemished and spotless lamb. Some people have said, some people have said that all roads lead to Rome, and some have said that there are many paths to the same summit. Well, all roads may lead to Rome, but only one road leads to Jerusalem. And there may be many paths to the same summit, but such a summit is not Mount Zion. Our avenue, our path, our derech, to a relationship with God is Yeshua Hanatsrati, Yeshua the Messiah. First Kepha one twenty says, God knew him before the founding of the universe, but revealed him in the Acharit Hayamim for your sakes in these last days. Should we say Yeshua was the Messiah, or should we say Yeshua is the Messiah? Well, what tell me? What do you say, Steve? Well, I don't. I think he was too. Was and is. We don't want to be time constrained when we don't need to be. Yeshua of Nazareth is Messiah then and now. It got because there was a. I was in one congregation. There was a door, and it said Messiah. In the Amida will bring. God will bring a Messiah. And someone had taken it upon themselves to cross out and write has brought. Well, we can be too time focused. Actually, Hebrew and even Greek are less time focused than English is. On the one hand, God knew him before creating the universe. To say that God chose Messiah way back then is not just to say that Hashem predicted or knew what would happen. He's not just... Um, he's, God is, we need to avoid thinking of God as just being a bigger human, a human with a high intellect. God did not just know who would live as Messiah of Israel and provide redemption for mankind. He was intimately involved in bringing the plan to fruition. Hashem may be grieved by our sin, but it not, did not catch him unaware. He has had a plan of salvation and of redemption for ages. On the other hand, God revealed the outworking of his redemption in Yeshua's life and sacrificial death in these last times. The Achret Hayamim, the end of days. It's the climax of Olam Hazeh, the present world, this world, this age. And in these end times, God has sent his one son to be atonement for the sake of his people. 
in the last verse we'll look at today, First Kepha one twenty one, it says, Through him you trust in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your trust and hope are in God. So what is the basis of our relationship with God? Something meritorious about us? Some abstract concept of a deity who is so loving that he need not see sin atoned for? No. The basis is Messiah Yeshua. There are different senses in which one can be a child of God. The richest sense is when an individual admits his or her sinfulness and in fear, yes, fearful, reverential awe puts his trust in Messiah Yeshua, the unblemished and spotless lamb. Through him we trust in God, or more literally, through him trustful ones are in God. Those who trust in God through Yeshua have on the basis of what a basis of, on the basis of what was done in Messiah, the confident expectation that God can and will do as he promised for them. What confirms the validity of our messianic hope? God's vindication of Yeshua. God raised Messiah and God glorified Messiah. God had the final say. The uh, Martin Buber in one of his writings says that he contrasts Christianity and Judaism. He said Christianity is, main, is primarily emphasizes belief, whereas Judaism emphasizes emunah, faith, or trust. And that's probably a little simplistic. Christianity has plenty of writings about the importance of trust. But um, Judaism's focus is not as much on but what you believe as upon who you have faith in and where your trust is. What does this mean for us? Faith is not as mystical as we sometimes may think. It is our trust in he whom is surely worthy of this trust. And hope is not some utopian dream. Rather, it's a confident hope. The author of Hebrews put it in Hebrews 3.6, but the Messiah, his son, was faithful over God's house, and we are that house of his provided we hold firmly to the courage and confidence inspired by what we hope for. We place our trust and our hope in God, and our avenue to God is Messiah Yeshua. And this is our emphasis in, the, um, on, in turning to the king, putting our lives in submission to the king on Rosh Hashanah. Messianic Jews, fearers of God, fearful? Yes, but Why? Because the God whom we fear is also the Lord whom they trust forever. We trust forever. The God who has planned and done for us only good from all eternity. If anyone, this is the time when we focus this month upon coming into the season of redemption. The season of emphasizing our relationship with the king. If anyone hasn't put their trust and fear, if it needs re-emphasis, this is the time. There's no. This is the time of self of this month of, and we only have a week and a half more or so to go. This is the time of reflection upon oneself, looking in the mirror, and we can say, if not now, when? Why wait? And now we will continue with the LA New, ninety-three, I believe. <laughs>